people that's probably very familiar to uh, most people, even people that don't go to church, you know, they've, they've heard uh, the story maybe from Sunday school or, or maybe some, from some reference that people may say, Daniel in the lion's den. It's automatically associated with who Daniel is. It was one of those great trials uh, that he went through in his life. And if you've been with us as we've been going through the book of, of Daniel, starting all the way back in Daniel chapter 1, we learned that not only did he serve under Darius, which is the king of the Medes and the Persians, which we're finally getting to meet here in chapter 6, but, but he's actually served under three different kings, under two different empires. He's no longer that, you know, boy that he was at the beginning in college. No longer just starting out, he is now a seasoned counselor. He has served under multiple kings in multiple capacities, whether having to deal with the highs or the lows of serving underneath a governor or a king or someone who is in charge of a massive empire. He has had to rule over many, many different people. Uh, but now in chapter 6, we're introduced to the Medes and the Persians. And remember last week at the very end of the chapter after Belshazzar had this amazing party with the gold and silver cups from the very temple that was from the homeland of Daniel himself, the writing was on the wall. And what happened that very night? Belshazzar died. The Medes and the Persians, they walk in and literally take over the Babylonian Empire. And last week we got a, just a little glimpse of what that empire was like. They were very powerful, of course. It was a conglomeration of multiple uh, nations that had been subjugated by uh, the Babylonians. We're going to see that there was also two kings that ruled consecutively, Darius and Cyrus, who are going to rule over the, the Medes first and then also the Persians as well. We're introduced to this guy by the name of Darius. And if he makes a, a law, this law absolutely superseded even his authority. You see, the Medes and the Persians, they lived by laws. Not, not by someone who uh, spoke something into existence, a, a fickle king who could change his mind at any time. No, this was a society based upon uh, laws. And so when we're introduced to Darius here in chapter 1 of verse 6, it says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be over the whole kingdom and over these three governors of whom Daniel was one. And that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. A, a society of administration with laws that backed it up. Verse 3, then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors, the satraps, because an excellent spirit was found in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. 
So, Father, tonight as we approach this amazing section, this probably even familiar section of the Bible, Lord, speak to us clearly. It's so easy to be distracted by all the things that are in our lives right now. Help us to leave those things outside this room tonight. Help us to be focused upon you. To even prepare our hearts for coming to the table. Communion. Uh, realizing that we have a, a, a much greater God. Uh, a God who is sovereign, who is over all, who loves us the same. Even sent his son to die for us so that we could have a life with you forever and ever. And just as we sang uh, tonight that beautiful psalm, Psalm 84, the sons of Korah writing, I'd rather be in the house of the Lord than anywhere else. Even being jealous of the, the very birds that lived in the rafters of the temple. They get to live here and we don't. And so Lord, tonight, those of us that are here, those of us that are watching online, Lord, I ask you bless them for coming to the house of God. For, for coming here tonight, Lord, that you would bless their time and even multiply it, Lord. The things that they may be giving up tonight, I ask that you would bless them for it. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. Speak to us clearly. Give us your wisdom tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. Can you imagine the favoritism that is being shown to Daniel right now? You know, first of all, there's 120 satraps. These are like, you know, officials in the government of the Medes and the Persians. And then there's three that are over each of these 120 officials, right? 40 for each of these guys divided up into thirds. And then uh, what does it say in verse 3 about Daniel? Not only is he better than the 120, but now he's being favored even over the three. What does Darius want to do with his authority? He wants to literally give it to Daniel. You can run the show, right? You can run uh, the kingdom. This was the wisdom that Daniel had. And we saw this multiple times, especially during the time of King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar trusting Daniel so much that he was willing to give Daniel the authority to rule the kingdom. The, the wisdom that God had shown to Daniel multiple times, first interpreting uh, dreams and then having to go through not only the, you know, the downfall of the king that he loved to watch him literally falling on his knees and, and eating grass. But also, as we see here, even the overthrow of the kingdom that he had served under previously. Verse 4, as with anything, when someone is shown favoritism, what happens to the people that, that think they might be even equal with you, if not better than you? Yeah. You may have had it in a family or in a, in a job. And, and you understand whether it's, you know, favoritism that you know, is shown to you or favoritism that is shown to another person, what happens in the heart of people just for being people? You get jealous, right? Why is he being treated that way or better than me? We have all the same position, right? 
Why is that person being treated better than me? Verse 4, so the governors and the satraps sought to find a charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault. Isn't that a good place to be in? We, we talked about this last week, and, and the question that I posed uh, to you last week is, you know, what happens in your work or your family or or your situation, your sphere of influence? <clears throat> Will you stand for what is right when everybody is against you? Will you be like Daniel does? And by the way, they find no fault in him. There, there's no vice. <clears throat> there, there's no, you know, uh, sin that he's involved with or some way to condemn him in any way. So what do they do with the very laws themselves? And this is what people have to do. They have to change the rules. It's just like little kids on a playground. When someone starts losing, what do they do? Change the rules, Right? So that it's in their favor, right? In fact, this is exactly what happens. Verse 5, then these men, oh, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. And this poses the question, which laws are greater? <clears throat> uh, the question even in our own society. Which laws are greater, God's laws or humans' laws? And yes, we're supposed to submit to the government. As, you know, a people that serve God, we are called to uh, submit to the government. We are called to submit and obey to the laws of the land unless, and this is a big unless, they go against God's laws. This is the perfect example, by the way. Daniel had submitted his entire service to the various kings and various empires that he served under. And now there's going to be a law that goes against God's law. And what is the choice that he has to make? <clears throat> we see it there in verse 6. <clears throat> so these governors and satraps thronged before the king. I love that word, by the way. And we're reading from uh, the New King James Version. Normally we've been going through the, <clears throat> the NLT. Uh, but I, I, I noticed some words, especially in the New King James Version, that just kind of brings out the various flavors of what it is like. There it says, thronged before the king. Can you imagine these, you know, <clears throat> uh, wannabes? These, these guys that are trying to get on the favor of their king. And what do they do to do it? They butter them up. <clears throat> they, they, they literally, you know, kiss his rear end. Right? That's exactly what they're doing. You're the greatest in all the kingdom, right? You're the greatest of everybody. You are the best. And guess what? People need to worship you. And of course, anybody would want to hear that, especially a, a king... What do they say to them in verse 6? King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom. Is that true, by the way? Is that true? No. Daniel doesn't agree with this. 
Are all the governors in accord in this wanting a new law that would worship the king? No, they're, they're telling half-truths. Part of the governors, two-thirds of the governors do, but one-third doesn't. The administrators and the satraps, the counselors and the advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. And of course, what does this do to a person with pride and ego? You know, understanding that, you know, all of us have to go through certain temptations in life and pride and ego are the most devastating. Is this benefiting the, you know, governors and the satraps? What is it doing? What are they trying to do? They're trying to bring the downfall of one person. They don't care who they worship. They, they worship multiple gods. They worship multiple, you know, idols. But who is this going to be to the detriment of Daniel? And they know it, by the way. They, they've, whether they've served in the previous government or, or know the, the, the history of who Daniel was as an upstanding, righteous person that will always pray to his uh, God. And remember, you know, previously, even his friends, uh, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? What, what was the, the test that they had to go through? When you hear all those musical instruments, what does everybody have to do? Bow down, bow down. And who's the only one standing? Three guys, right? Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. And what was the trial that they had to go through? What was the, you know, punishment that they had to go through? What was the consequences of their standing for what was right? Being put into the fire. But by the way, who was there? You guys know. The fourth one. And you guys know the result of this story already, Right? Everyone here knows the result of the story. Everyone knows what's going to happen at the end. All of you do. There's, there's nothing new being taught tonight. You guys know what's going to happen at the end of the story. But does Daniel in this verse know what's going to happen? Do you know what's going to happen in the middle of your trials? It, 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 it's, you know, putting yourself in this situation. Do I stand up for what is right or what is convenient? Do I, do I stand up for what is right or, or what everybody else are doing? Go with the crowd. Go with the flow. It's so easy to, you know, well, that happened to Daniel. That happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That happened to the, the men of old, but it doesn't happen now. Does God still work miracles today? Yes, he does. Now, O king, established the decree, signed the writing, so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Even the king cannot change the law in the Medes and the Persians. All the other previous uh, nationalities or kingdoms in the past, including the nation of Babylon, 
they all were able to change the law on a whim. But what would happen with the Medes and the Persians? It was a, law, a nation based upon laws. So even the king, for those 30 days that the law is in place, couldn't change it himself. That, that this law was literally put into a stone. Now look at what he writes there in verse 9. Therefore King Darius signed the written decree. He didn't write it. He just signs it. Who, who was the one that, who were the ones that wrote it? Those jealous governors, right? Those jealous administrators that, that coveted Daniel's position. And, and what was the consequence of, of not worshiping the king? You're going to be demoted. You're going to be, you know, somehow uh, slap on the wrist, disciplined, or, or, you know, somehow lose a paycheck or something like No, what was the penalty for not bowing down to the king? Death. Verse 10, now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. You know the law, you know the consequences of the law, and what do you do? There's a decision that has to be made. You may be in the midst of a decision. I don't know. You may be in the midst of a, a choice that you have to make. You're going to choose what's convenient or, or what is right. And it's easy. I mean, you know, it's easy for me to, you know, look out on the audience and say, oh, well, you, you know, have to make a choice whether it's easy or right. But guess what happens in my life? Do I have to make choices too? Who am I accountable to? Do you understand the accountability doesn't happen just between human beings? But who are we ultimately accountable to? God. Who was Daniel ultimately accountable to? And, and, and again, you're in this situation. You're, you're, you're having to decide, I'll just close the windows today. I'm still praying. I'll just close the windows. I'll, I'll just do it in a different place. I'll pray in a different place. I'll, I'll open my Bible in a different place. But what does Daniel do? Knowing the law and the consequences of the law. He leaves the windows open. What bravery is that? What courage is that? Look at what it says there. <clears throat> and in his upper room, he, by the way, he's up in that tower or that room that is high. It, it's not, you know, being a governor, being a p person of power. He is, you know, has a, a good upper room. And what does everybody see when his windows are open? They can see into that room. And what do they see him doing as he did every single day with his windows open toward Jerusalem? He knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed. Wow. Not just once, not just twice, three times. 
By the way, he's not, you know, going in the streets, rallying the troops and saying, we need to overthrow this law. What is he doing? Just in his room. For everyone to see. Submitting to the one who has authority over the king that he serves. Submitting to the one who has authority over the nation that is literally the power of the day, the Medes and the Persians. He prayed and he thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Can you imagine thanking God in the midst of the trial? Not, not asking that God would, you know, somehow, you know, give a plague to the governors or, or, or somehow overthrow the empire or somehow do something bad to those that had written this law. No, what does he do? He thanks God. In the midst of the trials, he thanks God. I don't know what trials you're going through, but can we thank God in the midst of our trials? Praise him even in the midst of our trials. Can you imagine the boldness of Daniel to continue to pray despite the law? Oh, what courage Daniel had. By, by the way, remember what Daniel's name means? Uh, you know, Daniel means that uh, Elohim or, or God is my judge. Who is he submitting himself to? The real judge. The, the one who is judge over all, right? We'll see this even better in chapter 7, by the way. Verse 11, then these men assembled. They, they found Daniel praying. And what did they do? Look at him, right? Look at what he's doing. They pointed out to everybody, even if, you know, you haven't seen it yet. They, they tell everybody, you know, if there was Twitter or, you know, whatever it is back then, they'd be, you know, filming him, right? Look, look, look what that guy, he's breaking the law. He's not worshiping the king. And of course, what do they immediately uh, demand from the king? What do they immediately demand from the king? You have to enforce this law right now. No grace, no mercy. You have to enforce this law now. Knowing that they themselves had written it with Daniel in mind that he would be thrown into the lion's den. But that's exactly what they do in verse 12. And they went before the king, spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a, a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the lion's a den of lions? The king answered and said, This thing is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, by the way, they're bringing up his past, that he hasn't even, you know, literally been serving faithfully under multiple kingdoms, under multiple kings, and they're bringing up his heritage from the past. That, that Jew, that, that Israelite, that, that person that we even look down upon, who doesn't even have the right to be a governor like us because we have an amazing heritage. We have a pedigree, right? What do they do? Their jealousy is just oozing out of their 
their mouths as they're even saying this. He does not show due regard to you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. By the way, who had more respect for the king than any of them? Daniel did. He showed it multiple times in the past. He had shown it to King Nebuchadnezzar. He had shown it to King Belshazzar. And he had also shown it to King Darius. But who was greater even than the kings that he served under, he had submitted to, even the kings that he loved, who was greater than them? God was. God is. God's laws always supersede man's uh, laws. Verse 14, and the king, when he heard these words, by the way, this is how you know the relationship between Darius uh, and uh, uh, Daniel. Just like we saw the relationship between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel there in chapter 4, where, where Daniel knew he had to come to the king and said, you need to change your ways or, or there's going to be consequences, king. And what did he do when he knew he had to tell the king uh, that something bad was going to happen to him? King Nebuchadnezzar, he cried because he loved his king. The relationship here is just as uh, you know, amazing, this respect that they both have, even this love uh, for one another. What does Darius do? When he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself. Been such a fool. I shouldn't have listened to these, you know, people that were just trying to butter me up. I, I should have sought wise counsel before signing the law. He was displeased with who? Himself. He set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. He labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. He says, in every way possible, I want to change this law. But being the Medes and the Persians, the law superseded even the king himself. Even the king had to obey the laws that he himself signed according to the national uh, decree. Then these men approached the king and they said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. They got him pigeonholed. They got him cornered. You have to obey. He has to go into the lion's den. They gloat, right? We're going to be taking communion tonight, right? Who gloated when Jesus died? Who thought they had won when Jesus died? Satan. The, the laugh, the gloating. We finally won. We killed the Son of God. Just like these governors, they're gloating. We finally won. Verse 16, so the king gave the command and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. By the way, in every single case that we see this den of lions, this isn't a cave. This is actually a pit. Uh, the person that is being put into this den of lions actually has to go down into it. 
And by the way, the, the wording that we see here, not only here, but also later on in, in the chapter is you have to actually be pushed into this lion's den. And on the bottom, there's this pride of lions. By the way, that's, you know, I had to look it up, okay? That, that's what a group of lions is called, a pride of lions, right? Can you imagine that? The, the, the pride of these people pushing him into a pride of lions. And who even supersedes the pride of the lions? Not only the group, but also their appetite as well. Do you, do you think they fed the lions before they cast Daniel into it? Would they have been that stupid? That's what a lot of people do when they criticize the Bible. Oh, they just might have, you know, been fed before. No, we're going to find out that they were ravenous. They were literally ravenous. And who's the one that shuts the mouth of the lions? By the way, who's praying for Daniel? Look at what it says there in verse 16. So the king gave the command. He brought Daniel, cast him into the lion's den. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought, laid on top of the mouth of the, of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet rings and with the signets of his lords. And the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. He didn't find an escape hole somewhere. He didn't somehow, you know, uh, with his strength, move the stone out in the middle of the night or somehow climb up. No, this stone is heavy. It's sealed on top of this den of lions. Wow, an impossible situation. And again, I, I know you all know what's going to happen. Every single one of us knows what's going to happen. But what happens when you're sealed in a den of lions? What do you do? It's scary, right? I don't know if you like lions or not. I don't know if you've ever been around lions before. There's no fence between Daniel and the lions. There's no wall between him. He's in the midst of the ravenous lions. Who's praying for him? Verse 18, now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. Wow. Did, did Daniel have an influence on those that he served? Just like with Nebuchadnezzar at the very end of his life and there in chapter 4, he finally realized it's not just Daniel's God or, or Hananiah's or Mishael's God, but it was his God. Because he saw the example, the testimony of a faithful man. We all have spheres of influence. You know that, right? There, there's people in your life that see you. There's people in your life that observe you. There, there's people in your life that you can be a witness or a testimony to that, that maybe no one else can be. Whether they're great or small, whether it's at your work or in your family, there's people that you can be a witness to. 
We've talked about this as we've been going through the, the major prophets all the way back to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah was there behind the walls. It during the same time period, he was behind the walls having to be an example to the rejects, to the refugees, those that were behind the wall that were going through this massive siege. And then there was Ezekiel. He had to, you know, be at the River Kibar with those that were, you know, blue-collar workers, the ones that didn't make the cut like Daniel, Hananiah, and Azariah, and Misael. And they all had their sphere of influence. And, and Daniel, he's in that position where he literally gets to influence the king himself. But being in a high position, is that also a place of high falling as well? Yeah. Where literally every decision that he would make could be life or death. Remember the very first time that that captain of the king's guard came to his dorm room. And what was he going to do to those four guys, those four graduates from the uh, Babylonian college? What was he going to do with them? Everybody that is a wise man has to die. Because no one's interpreted the dream. The consequences, right? Even the consequences in his college. What, what, it, what would happen if, if he himself didn't eat the meat from the table of the king? Didn't pass the test? What would happen to Daniel? Death, right? The consequences, of course, are severe. But the influence that he had was amongst the higher echelon of the Medes and the Persians. What does the king do for him all night long? He fasts. By the way, this is you know this is interesting, and no musicians were brought before him. He didn't he didn't have his you know radio or iPod, iPad or whatever it is you know your 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 cell phone on all night long listening to music. Back then, of course, being the king, he could have a you know an orchestra come to him at night. You know play silently for him while he's sleeping, right? Put him to sleep, right? But no, what did he want? He wanted to be alone with a God. He fasted. He left behind the things that he normally would be able to enjoy. Also, his sleep went from him. And then the king arose very early in the morning. He went in haste to the den of lions. When he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God. Wow, what a title is that. And that Daniel, being subject to this king, understood who he was really subject to. For whom he really worked, right? Thank God we have, you know, jobs, we have, you know, um, bosses, we have people that we are under, maybe you're even a boss, I don't know. But even bosses have bosses, right? Someone that you answer to. And what did Darius recognize in Daniel? Who was the ultimate one that he served under? God. The servant of a living God, by the way. Darius recognizes this. Have you been able to be delivered from the lions? 
as your God delivered you from the lions, as your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions. The expectation, of course, is silence, right? Maybe a lion burping or something like that, right? A lion, you know, purring down there, giving that low growl. What does Daniel do in verse 21? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong for you. He fulfilled both laws, by the way. Wow. How did he do that? He, he, he not only served the God that he loved, the God of the universe, but also even met the laws of the Medes and the Persians. Because this law that was put in place, what was it actually? Was it a real law? No, it was trumped up. You know, it was just this law that these guys had made up, got their king to sign for 30 days. I, I, I didn't even offend you, O king. I, I even was faithful to you, O king. You see, true justice, and, and notice, by the way, these are going to be the same lions in both cases, okay? The, the same lions that are down in the pit, okay? Who is the one that brings about true justice? God. The problem is a lot of times we want to exert our justice or we want to, you know, judge people according to our standards or, or judge people now right at this instant. I deserve fair treatment. I deserve my pound of flesh or whatever it is. Rather than being patient for God to judge. It's so easy to be able to you know, see the miracle that Daniel uh, went through and then cry out to God, where's my fair shake? Where, where's, where's my justice? I love this, by the way. Verse nine or verse 23. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him, commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den so Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. Just like the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, remember, there was no smoke found even in their clothes, right? Despite the fact that the guards that threw them, threw them in uh, burned to death, right? Were, were killed immediately. The only thing that had been burned was their bonds, right? The ropes that had bound them. Can you imagine walking in this fiery furnace that had been heated seven times hotter? God, you know, miraculously um, saves them. Is God able to save from the fiery furnace? Is God able to save from even his creation? By the way, lions are part of creation, right? Thank God. I, I don't know, again, what problems you're going through. 
But if God is able to save from the fire, from the lion's den, from the mouths of the lion, is he able to save you now? By the way, again, we get to have communion in a little bit. We get to prepare our hearts for communion. What was the ultimate um, thing that God has saved us from? We celebrate it tonight. It's not from a, you know, jealous boss. It's not from, you know... You know, family members that may be belittling us or, or jealous of us. It, it, it's not from the problems that we have to go through on a daily basis. It's even worse than that. It's sin itself. You see, Jesus Christ came to save us from sin. The wrath of God for the consequences of sin. Something even greater than a fire or a lion's den, by the way. Hell itself. Hell itself, that's where God saved us from. Verse 24, and of course, you know, you guys know the story, the consequences, these guys that had made this law, this trumped up law, what happens to them? Verse 24, and the king gave the command and they brought those men who had accused Daniel. They cast him into the den of lions, them, their children, their wives, and the lions overpowered them, broke all their bones in pieces before they came to the bottom of the den. Wow. Were they hungry? Were they hungry? Yeah. Before they even, you know, went down to the very bottom of that den of lions, they're being torn apart. It's gross. It's, it's you know, but it's nature, right? Did their gods who they had, you know, said, oh, we're going to worship the king, did he somehow save them? Were their idols, did they somehow save them? No. King Darius, of course, gives acknowledgement to who is actually in charge. Verse 25, then King Darius wrote to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I, have a I make a decree that every dominion of my kingdom, men, must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. His dominion shall endure to the end. By the way, this language is very similar to Nebuchadnezzar when he came to his senses there in chapter 4, verse 35. Who, who did he acknowledge as the God of the entire universe? His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Even greater than my kingdom. By the way, did Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom fall? Yes, Babylonians fell. Will the Medes and the Persians eventually be conquered? Yes, they will. Will the kingdom after that, the Greeks, be conquered? Yes. Will the Romans be conquered? Yes, they will. But which kingdom is an everlasting kingdom? It's the one that we're in, by the way. The kingdom of God. He delivers and rescues and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus uh, the Persian. And we'll learn more about Cyrus in a couple of chapters, by the way. I love what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2. 
Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear. Not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the harsh. It's easy to serve, you know, a boss that's nice. By the way, this word servant literally means slave. These were people that owned other people. These were masters that actually owned slaves and Christians being a part of this Roman society at the time when Peter is writing this. What do, what do we do? Our, our, our master, our, our, the person that is over us is, is somehow telling us to do these things that we know we shouldn't do. Which law is higher God's laws are men's laws. Verse 19 of 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if, it, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Does God see the suffering that we go through? And by the way, the example in the very next verse isn't some, you know, person like Daniel or Joseph who they went through many, you know, hard things. But who's the example in the very next verse? And by the way, many people take this verse out of context. Many people, you know, just either quote a, a part of this. But the example is that Christ is the example of perfect submission, superior submission. What is the example here? For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us. If Christ suffered for you, can you be an example to other people as well? Even in the midst of your suffering. Wow, that's hard. I mean, it's hard. But who is the example? The one that we're going to celebrate tonight. Because what did he do for you? So that you could go to heaven. So that you could be saved. What did he do for you? He suffered wrongs unjust to him. Right? That's what he did. In fact, it describes it here in, in, in amazing language. Uh, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. When those soldiers were beating him, mocking him, whipping him, putting the crown of thorns on his head, uh, whipping him, putting that robe, and then later on after the blood had coagulated on that robe, ripping it off, he suffered. Why? What was his eyes fixed on? Do you know he did it for you and for me? So that we could have an example who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live to righteousness by whose stripes we were healed. Wow. What did Christ do for you and me? So that we could be saved. It makes the men of old look like, you know, little boys, right? It makes Daniel's sufferings look small. 
makes Joseph's sufferings look small. Uh, what, it, what did Jesus Christ do for you and for me? He suffered for us so that we could have eternal life. We'll just read a, a couple of verses in chapter 7. I want to make sure that we uh, just just read a couple of verses here. It, it, it's really amazing what happens in the very next chapter. And by the way, Daniel is divided perfectly in half. Uh, the first six chapters are about his life. The sec, or second six chapters are about his prophecies, okay? His foretelling. We're going to see that as we, we walk through this. And a lot of the other prophets, or in fact, most of the other prophets, prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, most of their prophecies were about repenting of sin, right? They, they, they told the people to repent of their sin, come back to God, and very little was about the future or foretelling or, or somehow foretelling what was going to happen. Where, where in Daniel, 50% is about what he himself went through, and then 50% is about the future. So in terms of percentages, Daniel has a lot of prophecies about the future. In fact, six full chapters are about his prayers to God. What does it say there in chapter 7, verse 1? We mentioned this about two months ago when we started Daniel. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions in his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Can you imagine this, that Daniel having to write down not only the suffering that he went through, not only the hardships that he went through, but also what God revealed to him. He, he didn't just wake up from his dream and forget it. He didn't just wake up from the visions and forget it. Like I do. Like a lot of us do, right? Can't even remember what we dreamed about last night or the night before or whatever it is. What does he do with his dreams? What did he do with his prayers? He writes them down. That's why, you know, you guys got, for those of you that were here at the beginning, you got uh, notebooks. The privilege is that we write down the dreams, the visions, and the prayers that God gives us. Do you know why he does this? There's two reasons why. So that we could have them for ourselves, by the way. Thank God. Future people, you know, us get to read them. But also so he could thank God when the prayers were answered. He could praise God when the prayers were answered. We're going to see how literally this spiritual warfare is taking place. And he praises God, thanks God for the answer to the prayer. Wow. Because it's easy to talk to God and say, I need help, God. I need help, God. I need help. God sends us help. And then what do we do? We forget about it, right? We're human. We forget. Going back to the prayers, we can remember what Christ has done for us. I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit. We're, we'll read verses 9 and 10, and then we'll get into communion here. Chapter uh, 7, verses 9 and 10. 
I love this. I watched till thrones were put in place and the ancient of days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. He got a glimpse into heaven. Wow. And invite the the worship team and the men that are going to be handing out the uh, communion to come forward. You see, communion is a relationship. A communion is, you know, not just, you know, a little wafer and some juice. What does communion represent? Communion is literally fellowship with the one who died for us. We get to commune with the God that we serve. We get to commune with a living God. How precious is that? Now, I don't know if this is your first time or, you know, how many years you've been coming to Calvary Chapel or whatever it is. We don't have membership. The only requirement is that you know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Whether it's your first time or or tenth time or a thousandth time, it doesn't matter. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because if you don't, this means nothing. Absolutely nothing. But, but if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, I invite you as the men pass out the plates that you would, you would take it and hold it, okay? And just pray over it. We're going to be taking it corporately all together. But remember what Jesus Christ did for you. His shed blood on the cross for you. Make it personal. The remembrance is there so that we can know what Jesus Christ did uh, for us. So as the man hand out and the worship team plays, uh, just hold the the cup and the, the wafer. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond a measure That He should give His only Son To make a wretch's treasure How great the pain of searing loss The Father turned His face away Wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulder. Shame to hear my mocking voice call out a 
among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. in anything no gifts no power no wisdom but I will boast in Jesus Christ his death and resurrection why should I gain from his reward I cannot give an answer but this I know with all my heart, His wounds have paid my ransom. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, His wounds have paid my ransom. says in Matthew 26, 26, and as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it. And then he broke it in pieces and gave it to his disciples. And can you imagine that? Just, just, you know, in this upper room, you know, as he would tear off those pieces and pass them around. The, the bread that they're eating was touched by Jesus Christ. Blessed by Jesus Christ. And, and yet at the same time, it represented him. In fact, that's, that's exactly what it says. There in the phrase that Jesus tells them, that this is my body, take it, for this is my body. Take this. This is my body, broken for you, right? And so when we take it together, remember what Jesus Christ did for you. As you chew on it, remember what Jesus Christ did uh, for you. And so we take it together. And he took the cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. That, that covenant that not only was bound in, in, in who God is as God, but also now as as Jesus Christ is going to give his life for us, what does this represent? What does this represent? The covenant of God to you and me. 
And what was the covenant cut in, written in? The blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, it says it there. For this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. And this is, you know, we always look back on this 2,000 years ago when Jesus in the upper room shared his last meal with his apostles. But also, this looks forward as well. Verse 29, what is Jesus looking forward to? As we should also, by the way. This doesn't just represent, you know, Jesus dying on the cross. Yes, that's what we celebrate. But there's also hope in this as well because you and I get to celebrate this in heaven with him. What is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And this is why, again, this is meaningless without you knowing Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior. Because when will you get to celebrate with better drink than this, better, you know, wafer than that? With a new tongue and actually taste it better. We get to celebrate with Jesus Christ. So as you drink that, not only remember what Jesus Christ did for you, but look forward to what we get to do with Jesus Christ in the future. And then as our tradition is on Wednesday nights, the first Wednesday of the month, it doesn't end there, and you guys know this, verse 30. What do they do right after the communion service? What do they do right after the, 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 the communion didn't end at verse 29. It continues on, by the way, verse 30. Then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. That's our tradition, we, we sing a hymn. Please stand with me. I want to, I want to read just the second verse for you. <clears throat> When Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. L listen to the words, make them your own. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Wow. Who did Jesus Christ die for on that cross? Who should have been on that cross? But Jesus Christ took our place. Love that last phrase, to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. So as you sing this, just, you know, immerse yourself in the words. Know that this is personal for you and for me. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. Great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads. For me, my name is graven 
on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me hence depart. No tongue can bid me hence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am. The King of glory and of grace. At one with him I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is in with Christ on high. With Christ my Savior and my God. With Christ my Savior and my God. And so, Father, help us to see the Ancient of Days. Help us to see the one who not only died for our sins, but whom we get to have communion with forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That this is just a prelude. This is just a, a, a very poor tasting of what it's going to be like forever and ever there in your presence, knowing that we get to share who you are in heaven forever, bought with a price, not of our own, but with the precious blood of the Lamb of God. So Lord, tonight, change our hearts. Help us not to be the same as we entered into this place. The, the problems or the trials or or whatever we, we you know, um, may expect to happen as we exit this room. Maybe tomorrow or the decisions that we have to make this coming week. Or, or know that whether we're procrastinating or, or just have to deal with, Lord. I ask that you would help us to lay those things at your feet. And ask for wisdom to obey you over man. To look to you for our decisions, Father. So, Lord, I ask you bless these, my family, my friends. I ask that as this, this um, remembrance of what you've done for this us, this looking forward to what we get to experience forever, that it would truly encourage us, give us hope for another day, for another week, for another month, for another year would see you working in our life. You would help us even amidst the hardest of problems, Lord. So I thank you for the examples of old, the people of old that served you faithfully. 
Help us to take encouragement in that and then apply that to our own lives, Father. Lord, we thank you for being the ultimate example of what it means to be, submit and to serve and even to suffer, Lord. Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us. We love you. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless.